true that some Americans who have health insurance plans that they bought on their own through the old individual market are getting notices from their insurance companies suggesting that somehow because of the Affordable Care Act they may be losing their existing health insurance plans. This has been the latest flurry in the news. There, because there's been a lot of confusion and misinformation, I want to explain just what's going on. I may be crazy. But it just may be a lunatic you're looking for. Who is in charge, Madam Secretary? The person now in charge as an integrator is QSSI, one of our... Who was in charge as it was CMS being built? was in charge uh, up to... At that team, who is the individual? Michelle Snyder is the... Michelle CEO. Snyder is the one responsible for this debacle. Well... Excuse me, Congresswoman. Michelle Snyder is not responsible for the debacle. Hold me accountable for the debacle. Okay. I'm responsible. Thank you. I yield back. It's time for the Morning Edge here on WWPR 1490 AM. Heard Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 9 AM to 10 AM. I'm Henry Raines, and joining in the studio, Melton Little. Good morning, Melton. Morning, Henry. Well, Melton, I know everybody always wants to know what the latest Augie sighting is. Augie been uh, absent from the studio for a couple weeks now, and everywhere from off the coast of Brunei surfing with the Sultan to the Australian Karaoke Open Championship to uh, Iowa and, and then New Hampshire. But uh, I don't, I didn't get my latest Augie sighting. From tweet, 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 excuse me, or Twitter, uh, I had a phone tip on Wednesday of uh, not so much an Augie sighting, but an Augie rumors going around a local meeting. And uh, but all I can tell you about that, since it was a phone call and totally confidential, the person who gave me the tip went by the nickname Philadelphia Phil. So that's the latest on the Augie saga, wherever he is, and we'll try and have more for you on Monday. But, Milton, uh, thank you for coming in again. This no Friday. problem. I thought I saw a picture of Augie in Tiananmen Square investigating the bombing. Oh, that's probably, you know, that's just like him. You know, keep it on the download. Just keep it, you know, because, you know, it's one thing to be, you want to be seen in Iowa. You want to be seen in New Hampshire. But you go to Tiananmen Square, ah, not so really much. want to be seen there. Yeah. So anyway, we have lots going on today. We have a guest coming up in just about 15 minutes or a little bit less, and that would be David Hoffman. He is the author of Citizens Rising, Independent Journal, and the Spread of Democracy. He's actually an Emmy Award-winning, uh, I guess you have to be a broadcaster as opposed to an author, which we'll be talking with him on that line. But we have things that, that we will get to in momentarily. Well, you know, if there's been anything over the last, what is it now, four and a half years with the President Obama and the Obama administration, especially since 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party, it was talked about the deficit and we're spending more than we take in, and oh my gosh, it's in, unsustainable. Well, tax increases, spending cuts, and stronger economy nearly sliced America's budget deficit in half in fiscal 2013, lowering it to the lo lowest level since 2008, Treasury Department data showed on Wednesday. The federal government in took in $75.1 billion more than it spent last month, leaving the deficit for the fiscal year, which runs from October to September, at $680 billion, down from $1.09 trillion in 2012, and... I mean, that's a 40%, uh, yeah, 40% drop in one year. And it was as high as, well, I think, $1.9 So we're talking about a third of what the budget deficit peaked out at. And yet we have the Tea Party and in, in continuing this over the budget shutdown, the, uh, the possible default, and now we push the kick the can down the road three months. We're going to go through it all again. But in spite of all that bluster, 
it's going the right direction. Well, it's definitely going the right direction. I, <clears throat> I mean, uh, when you you're, you're still in a little bit of a deficit when you take in eighty cents and spend a dollar. But uh, at least the budget's uh, coming down, the deficit's coming down, and that's going to be an interesting topic in the, in the midterm elections, Henry, uh, when the Tea Party stands up there and, and rants and raves about Obama and increase in spending and increase in deficits, and the facts and figures aren't necessarily going to support that argument. And with all the kerfuffle right now about the Obamacare and the rollout, and that's, the election is going to be 14 month, 13 months down the road, and... I, what it will be the thing that gets traction with people? I, I don't, I can't see these problems with the health care and the Affordable Care Act uh, being at this kind of fever intensity after everything's shaken, shaken out. Excuse me, uh, over the next few months as people get their health care or don't get their health care and pay, find what they're going to have to pay. Uh, and I certainly don't think that what was driving the the general public, as opposed to the Tea Party core about spending and bailouts is going to be even on the horizon. Well, you know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen 13 to 14 months down the road, but certainly I agree the issue as to the rollout of Obamacare and the technical problems with the website, all of those things are going to be resolved by the midterm elections. The question at the midterm election is going to be whether Obamacare, if that's even a focus anymore of the Tea Party or the Republican Party, is, is meeting its intended purpose. Are we enrolling the numbers that we, that we expected to roll, enroll? Are we enrolling the number of young Americans, and by young Americans, I mean 20 to 35-year-olds who previously had no health care or who had pre-existing conditions? Are the companies uh, able to continue to earn a reasonable amount of profit in the marketplace to sustain ongoing health care and to sustain ongoing providing of health care services. I mean, those are going to be the health care issues, but who knows 13 to 14 months from now. The interesting thing, Henry, is it's not that big of a margin, if you're a Democrat out there listening, to, to pick up uh, control of the Congress. You're only talking about about 17 seats, if I remember correctly. You may know more than I. Uh, and uh, I think we're going to see one of those seats in Bill Young's district <clears throat> with the announcement of Alex Sink moving into that district to run for that seat. Yeah, that was an important announcement, I think, as far as what you're talking about, as far as the general makeup of Congress. But handicap that race for us. I mean, she, she's a petite woman, but she's sort of the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, she's more than the 800-pound gorilla in the room. I'm... I'm uh, uh, privy to the websites that they that they pop out mostly because they're fundraising, but she anticipated raising a hundred thousand dollars in the first thirty six hours after she announced. I think a hundred thousand in the oh. first thirty six hours. Now, now understand this is a uh, a special election. We're not even talking about a general election, Henry. So, you know whether the whether the big uh, political machines that contribute the significant m amounts of money have geared up yet. Who knows? But I think she'll meet that mark and pass it. And there'll be a lot of money in that race. Uh, you may see one of the most expensive special election races in Florida uh, if the Republicans decide to contest it. The problem with the Republicans contesting that seat is that the Republicans don't like to spend a lot of money unless the numbers are heavily slanted their way. They're not real big risk takers on the campaign finance issues. And this district is, is very split down the middle. If you remember, uh, this district went for uh, Obama. Um, it was a very close race for the governor's race, so Alex Sink has some support in that district, and I look for her to be in Congress out of that out of that 13th congressional district out of Tampa. And coming up in just a minute, we'll be speaking with David Hoffman. He's the author of Citizens Rising. I do want to get to one bit of house cleaning here uh, about things I've said on the previous shows, and the underlying truth is still accurate. I, I said on a couple different occasions after checking out. Uh, the healthcare.gov website and the improvements where you could go and actually get a sense of what your subsidy would be, that my family would be much better off if our employers would drop healthcare and based on our family income go in and buy with the subsidized price. That is still true. And uh, no, no difference in those numbers if we were buying without healthcare. I did find out Speaking to Rich Piero, who's been on the show several times now and is uh, sort of our resident expert on uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, he was one of just 100 uh, insurance professionals in the private industry, in the sales side, 
that got certified in the Affordable Care Act so that he could carry on. And uh, all his peers uh, two years ago, Melton, were saying, oh, you're wasting your time. That thing's going to be repealed. Why? You're just going to learn all that stuff for nothing. And now he's in one of the most demand people on that subject uh, in, the, in Florida and beyond. But anyway, so I, I was asking him to, about that, and he explained to me something very unfair about the way the law acts. Now, I was under the impression that the, the number is right, 9.5% of your income. If your employer, as you as an individual, me as an individual, if your employer offers a certified health plan that doesn't cost you more than 9.5% of your income, you aren't eligible for a subsidy. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. But the unfair part that I found out is, say, a husband and wife. And by the way, Melton, you, your areas of practice are what? Personal injury and family law? Right. Okay, so you probably will have to deal with this in the future when you have to help couples figure out how to, to allocate expenses and things like that. If, if, say, you have a husband and wife, and the combined income is... The, the the plan uh, is, I don't know, I'm stumbling, I'll say this. In other words, it's just based on one person's income. So one individual, if the plan is 9.5% of this single person's uh, income, they aren't qualified for a subsidy. But if that one person with the health plan also has a spouse and two children, or three or four or five children, even though they have a greater need with more members of the family, it's not computed for the family of four. So that, that family of four has to, 9.5% of their income for a family of four is a much higher burden than for the single person for the 9.5%. That's sort of hard to, I know in the real, that's especially hard to follow those numbers. But basically to do it without the numbers is the, the single person who can spend 9.5% of their income and perhaps not be too stretched, that, that family of four that's living on the same money isn't qualifying for a subsidy with the extra members. And I, I think that that just has to be something to be addressed. Well, they, they have to fix that. And uh, you're right about Rich Piero. Rich Piero is probably one of the better local sources on how this is all going to play out. And one, one of the problems that uh, I don't think uh, we're realizing with the with the Obamacare is that these carriers, the health insurance carriers that are going to be covering uh, the health insurance and, and having to offer this care, they have to continue to make some profit margin. If they don't make any profit margin, then capitalism doesn't work. And that's where you get all these people screaming about, you know, it's socialism, it's socialism. And I think that that's part of what drives some of these Republicans that are supported by these health care companies and receiving campaign contributions from them to continue to fight the, the, the implementation of this plan. You know, for example, the plan requires that these carriers spend 80% of what they take in uh, on benefits, and if they don't pay the benefits out, they have to provide a rebate. But in the years where they might spend more than the 80%, for example, if they spent 104%, Henry, of what they took in in premiums uh, paying out benefits, they don't have a credit coming back the next year. They just lose money that year with no way to recoup their losses. So you're going to see that get fixed. I guarantee that, that with the with the political clout that these major corporations have, you're going to major healthcare corporations have. You're going to see that get fixed. So, all right. Well, coming up right after the break, we'll be speaking with David Hoffman, author of Citizens Rising: Independent Journalism and the Spread of Democracy. Uh, I'll probably be revisiting this topic because there was a, another aspect of that that I, I want to explain without the detailed numbers there, but just very straightforward on that. We have a lot of information about uh, the NSA hacking into, by some accounts, by other accounts, in cooperation with Yahoo and Google, and the incredible hundreds of millions of, of data bits that, and data uh, points that they are collecting in just a monthly basis. You're listening to The Morning Edge. This part of the Morning Edge is brought to you by Callens Little and Delgado, practicing personal injury, criminal defense, and family law. Call 941 749 1446. 941 749 1446. I made the crazy, but it just made me a lunatic. You're looking for. 
Sarasota is home to a true gift. The Posture Clinic of Sarasota with Dr. Mark Diamato. 4450 South Tamiami Trail. Dr. Diamato is a veterinary chiropractor treating horses, dogs, or your favorite four-legged friends. First and foremost, animal chiropractic care is not intended to replace traditional veterinary medicine. Complementary care is a type of care that works with your vet and certainly not instead of them. To find out more information, call Dr. Mark Diamato at 941-927-7009. That's 941-927-7009. Oh, and by the way, Dr. Mark treats two-legged patients, too. Do you know which investment has tripled in price since the debt crisis and risen an average 20% a year for 11 years? It's not stocks, not bonds, it's silver. And right now, we at Lear Capital believe silver is poised to hit new record highs. And we're making it easier to own than ever. For a limited time, new customers with $5,000 or more to invest in gold or silver can get up to 10 certified Morgan Silver Dollars absolutely free. That's right, up to 10 100-year-old Morgan Silver Dollars when you invest $5,000 or more, a $600 value free. This offer is available for IRA accounts as well. Call right now, 800-634-0482, call Lear Capital now, 800-634-0482. Sharpen your edge. Call the Morning Edge with your comments at 941-745-1490. That's 941-745-1490. You can find your Morning Edge any time of the day on demand at themorningedge.podomatic.com. It's the Morning Edge here on WWPR 1490 AM. Sitting in the studio, Melton Little, and now joining us on the line is David Hoffman. He's the author of Citizens Rising, Independent Journalism and the Spread of Democracy. Uh, he's also President Emeritus and founder of Internews, a global nonprofit organization. We'll find Fostering Independent Media. We'll find out more about that. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and International Herald Tribune, as well as many, many more. He also serves as Chairman Emeritus of the Global Forum for Media Development. He's an Emmy Award-winning project director on the project Capital to Capital, produced in association with ABC News and Soviet State Television. And we'll want to find out more about that, too. But first, good morning, David Hoffman, and thank you for joining us on The Morning Edge. Good morning, Henry, and good morning, Tampa Bay. Yes. And, well, I, I want to get into your book in a moment, Citizens Rising, Independent Journalism and the Spread of Democracy, and we'll also be linking to websites on our podcast site. But first, uh, explain to people who may not be familiar with it what inner news is and what it means uh, in, in your projects, how it lays a foundation for so much of what you do. Well, I really... I, I used to be the uh, national director of the anti-nuclear war movement back in 1979 and, and quickly discovered that the, the only power that seemed uh, able to meet the challenge of the threat of nuclear war was the media. The media is the most powerful force for social change the world has ever known. And so we began to use television, satellite television, which was the new technology at the time, just like cell phones are now, we used satellite telephones to link Soviet and American audiences during the Cold War, and that was the birth of dinner news. And then we realized that once the transformation happened in there and the fall of this communism, that for democracy to take root in that country, there had to be pluralistic media, many radio and television stations. And so that began our work of what's now called media development, helping independent television stations and public interest stations like yours to flourish um, in kind of 
countries that formerly had authoritarian governments. And, David, what brought you to this project, the, the book Citizens Rising, Independent Journalism and Spread of Democracy? What, what would you tell people is the reason they need to go out and read this book? Well, I think for 32 years since we founded Internews, I've been trying to make the point that media is important in social change, and it's been completely missed by historians and policymakers. You won't find more than a footnote about the role of media in the fall of the Soviet Union or the fall of Musharraf in Pakistan until lately, until the Arab Spring, when people are waking up and going, wow, you know, social media is really important. But um, I remember talking to Lee Hamilton, who was then the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Congress, and I, and I said, Congressman, you would never run an election campaign without the media, yet you're running foreign policy without the media. The United States government doesn't really have a, a media policy, per se. And, and like the media development sector, for example, which we pioneered, is gets about a half of 1% of all uh, development assistance. So I wrote the book to tell the stories of some amazing people I've known who have played central roles in the most important political events of our lifetimes. And, David, we see the, the Internet and social media, Twitter, whether it be Facebook, we see it play up in things like the uh, Arab Spring, and uh, you could even go to here domestically in the Tea Party movement, things like that. Yes. In, in one of my other hats that I wear, I have to talk to a lot of seniors, and I see a spectrum of people that are very connected, and I also see mm -hmm. people that, you know, I don't have a computer, I don't know, I don't know about that. They even have smart, <laughs> they may even have smartphones, but they don't have an email address. And same yeah. thing, I talk to people in uh, coming, some from coming from extremely poor situations in the same situation. What is the divide between? Uh, what used to be how people consume their news, those people that I, I just mentioned, and the the ones that are consuming it new. How how big is this division becoming, and yeah, is there any kind of uh, repercussions from it? Well, it's a very good question. Um, the you know the digital divide, uh, a phrase that was uh, uh, created by a friend of mine, Larry Irving which described the, the, the divide between the underdeveloped world that didn't have access to the new digital media and the developed world, between the rich and the poor, basically, has is largely disappearing. And the, the rate of increase of Internet connectivity in the underdeveloped world is now far, far higher than the rate of increase in the developed world, partly because the developed world has reached saturation. But you have places like India where you have 150% uh, levels of connectivity, <laughs> you know, every the average person has one and a half cell phones, I guess. Um, now, in this country, there is, there is, that doesn't diminish the fact that there is a, a, a divide and that there are people in this country, especially in rural areas, who don't, who live in some information poverty. The most amazing thing about the information revolution, and I think it's the most going to be a powerful force for equality in the world, even more than the previous two waves of egalitarianism, democracy, and socialism. With, with the information revolution, it's, it's not a win-lose situation. If you become more information rich, it enriches me. I don't lose anything by your becoming more information rich. So you see efforts like the one that Facebook is doing now called something called Internet.org, which is going to try to spread the Internet to every vast part of the world. Of course, they have a financial interest for doing so, but it's, it's also uh, a great thing socially. You have um, efforts being led by uh, Apple and Google right now to lower the cost of connectivity for people around the world. So I think the long-range uh, trend here is towards more equality, not less. Less of a divide, not more. David Hoffman, as we said before, is the author of Citizens Rising, Independent Journalism and the Spread of Democracy. You can find out more about the book at the website, citizensrisingbook.com. There's also a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash citizensrising. 
Uh, and again, that's Citizens Rising on the end of the Facebook.com, but it's CitizensRisingBook.com if you want to go straight to the website. And yeah, David, uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was. It might have been seven or so. I was interviewing the late Leonard Schlein. He's an author. He was actually a, a professional brain surgeon. That was his career, but he wrote books about anthropology and social development. And one of the mm -hmm. topics that came up was when you look at the uh, the population growth of the human species on the planet. For so long, it was just such a tiny slope up for thousands and thousands of years, and then you come into the point where the, the Industrial Revolution starts, and that curve of population versus the planet starts to climb and get steeper and steeper until you get into the last hundred years or so, and it almost becomes parabolic in its, its rate of increase of, of the human population on the Earth. And he made the point that any other place in biology where you see a species with that kind of population growth, one of two things happens. Either it's going to collapse suddenly, or there's an evolutionary change that allows it to continue to grow, maybe not at a parabolic rate, but avoids the collapse. So if we were looking at the human species and some people with all with the global warming, climate change uh, issues and other kind of uh, lack of resources, we could say, oh, well, the, the people with the glass half empty are going to see a, a population collapse. But I often wondered in the years since I had that interview with, with the late Leonard Schlein, uh, if the Internet and the social media isn't an evolutionary change, if it's taking the human species to a new unified nervous system for the whole species. What do you say to that? Well, it's an interesting thought. Um, there was a book some long time ago. I'm probably not going to remember the name of it, but it was, I think, I, actually, I think it was called The Global Brain. Uh, his argument, and I, this is, I'm, well, I'm way out of my league here. I don't, I don't know um, whether there's much truth to this or not, but his argument was that human consciousness uh, uh, comes to be when you get 10 to the 10th power of neural connections. And, and he was saying that as we reach a, a global population of 10 billion, we will, in a sense, become conscious as a species, self-conscious as a global mind. It's kind of trippy to think of that. Um, but, and, I, and again, I'm, I have, I'm, I'm just a layman when it comes to these things, so I, don't, I have no idea. Well, let's... Let's tell people that there's an open phone line at 941-745-1490, 941-745-1490 to ask a question or comment. Uh, David Hoffman, the author of Citizens Rising, Independent Journalism and the Spread of Democracy. Melton, you had something. Good morning, Mr. Hoffman. How are you? Hi, Malcolm. Um, as, you're looking at, as you're looking at the, the rise of the, of the social media, uh, particularly yeah. in particularly in these rapidly developing com uh, countries, what role do you see the the government of those countries having, and what ability and access do they have to control the the media that's being created within their own country? And I, I'm asking that question mainly because you know recently in the news we had the incident in, in Tiananmen Square, and there were a lot of postings coming out of China. Um, and uh, Tibet and other areas out uh, in that general region. And as soon as the photos started coming out, it seemed that the Chinese government had a way of suppressing them. Yes. Uh, but two thoughts on that. Now, I'll get to China in a second, which I find fascinating. In fact, of, of everything I wrote, I, I was most interested in the, in the last chapter, which was on China, uh, because it is so interesting. But first I wanted to say, I was reading a paper today about the NSA surveillance issues and Google and whatnot being so upset about it. And it struck me that we now have global technology and global corporations which no longer can really be regulated by a national government. So, for example, if, if the NSA spies on somebody making a phone call from the United States to Europe, they have to comply with U.S. laws. Now, today, Europeans are saying, well, wait a minute, before you get a court order to do that in the United States. Well, now we want you to get a court order in Europe to do it as well. So, you know, we, we, the Internet presents um, an economic 
model that the nation state was not set up to handle. So anyway, that's one thought on that. But China's fascinating because what you have is you, you have a network civil society emerging on the Internet and on mobile phones that is bringing a degree of freedom that was just inconceivable a couple decades ago. And, and so you have this popular opinion forcing change from the bottom up uh, local protest movements organized on lines have stopped major industrial development. Labor strikes spreading through social media and charity organizations proliferating. And even news and information, although I agree that it's heavily censored there, you get tens of millions of uh, microblogs and, and tweets happening. So I think the question in China is not so much whether or not there will be some kind of a revolution. I think the revolution's already happened. You have a degree of civil society and a degree of freedom which although it's in person. David? Yeah. David, uh, we're losing you there. I, your phone is breaking up. Can you uh, say something? We're not sure if we got you or not. Oh, well, here I am. If I move, is this better? Uh, yeah, that's much better. And uh, just to, as a sidebar here to the topic you're on, I do want to point out to people that if they go to the, the end of Citizens Rising, they'll find a chapter about the topic, The Dragon and the Internet. And, uh, yes. and if you can also roll into this, uh, what would be the Chinese characteristics of the Internet as for someone who's so familiar with the, the U.S. and Western version? Yeah, they, they've, built some, they, they've built a great firewall, it's called. So basically it's very hard for people. They're not impossible. You can use proxy servers and whatnot to connect to Western servers. The Chinese have basically restricted almost every server to Beijing, by the way, not even to the provinces. So the central government in Beijing controls things very carefully. The, a provincial governor in one of the outlying states is unable to, say, censor the Internet here. It depends on the central authorities in China. And the Chinese have essentially replicated every one of our uh, of, of our platforms. So they have a version of YouTube and a version of Twitter, and they have some some things now that combine the best of Twitter and the best of Facebook and things like that. It's very robust. You have 500 million people online. You have a couple hundred million microblogs, and they. They have a new service now that relies on on telephones and voice recognition that the Chinese authorities thus far have been unable to censor. Well, we're speaking with David Hoffman. He is the author of Citizens Rising. The website is citizensrisingbook.com. And it looks like we have a caller. Caller, you're live on the air with David Hoffman. Oh, hi. This is, uh, this is Wade. And hi, I, Wade. Hi. Go ahead, Wade. We're getting I'm very interested in what your guest is saying, and I'm very interested in looking up his book. I'm wondering if he, in his book, or if he now thinks of or dealing with the automation of warfare. I'm thinking of uh, the next step past mm -hmm. the drone, uh, which yeah. is remotely controlled, and I'm wondering about uh, the idea of armies being raised uh, that do not use humans, but robots. And um, yeah. I'm wondering if you have thought about that or if you have uh, dealt with it in any of your writing. And, uh, I, I, I do very much. I think, I think there are two great dangers the world faces. One is if we remove the human decision-maker in any lethal attacks, and we're very close to that now, uh, then, then, then I'm, 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 it, it's terrifying to me. The other is space weapons. Once we weaponize space, then I think we're all, we all have also gone to a new level of, of warfare that could get out of control. All right. Thank so you, Wade. We're looking, we're looking to a very changed kind of warfare, a very changed kind yeah. of society, a very changed kind of interrelationship with humans and with machines. Yes. Yes, we, we are. And I think, you know, I think we're entering a world we, it's hard to forecast when each of us has a little box on our desk that's going to be 10,000 times smarter than we are, it's going to be hard to understand how that all is together. I heard it explained that uh, this is growing, not uh, numerically, but exponentially. Uh -huh. And uh, that is a thing that is so hard for us to grasp, that 
the change that we can now expect that it, we, we are experiencing is an exponential uh, growth. And uh, that means a great deal as well. I'm going to hang up and listen to the rest of your conversation. And uh, thank you very much for coming on in your show. Thank you, Wade. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for maybe one or two more calls if you want to call in at 941-745-1490. 941-745-1490. Melton, maybe Star Trek The Next Generation was right. The uh, the higher level of uh, society will be the Borg. And uh, and David, I mean, we had that uh, citation just in the news recently about for the traffic citation for the woman wearing Google Glass. At least the technology is still on the outside of her skin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they have. Know. They are. They are experimenting with things on the inside now that would allow you to essentially think of what your email message is rather than speak it or, or type it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about the board. Technology, you know, has come a long way in the last hundred years. I expect it's not going to slow down in the in the next hundred. I, I am curious, though. Uh, back to the topic of your book. Uh, is it Dr. Hoffman or Mr. Hoffman? Are we calling you the right Mr. thing? Mr. Hoffman, uh, or David, actually. Why don't you try that? Okay. All right, David. Uh, I, I am curious, back to the to the topic of your book, as to the, the extent of the demographics in these, uh, yeah. in, in these rising, in the Arab Spring, or these rising uh, societies, and the, the percentages of the social media and Internet use based on a breakdown of age, uh, are we seeing a majority of that? Obviously, I would think we would be seeing a majority of that in the younger people, and that would lead me kind of a, to a follow-up question, which is some kind of prediction from you as to when that portion of society that's become so technologically driven and so instant news-oriented uh, begins to take power and, and take over positions of government, how that's going to change these, these different countries. And, David, if I could just make yeah. another plug for your book right here, that ties in with the demographic and the age makeup of your answer. His first chapter in Citizens Rising is a very provocative chapter. We don't have sex in the Soviet Union. So I think he's explaining the whole population growth problem in the Soviet uh, Union and, and now Russia. Go ahead, please, David. <laughs> well, now I'm really confused about where to go with this. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I'm like a, a little bird with a shiny object. Something catches my attention, Melton. Uh, had a very profound question, I, and I'm thinking about sex in the Soviet Union. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, by the way, that 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 quote came up, you know, 30 years ago in in a, in a program between Phil Donahue and Vladimir Posner, the very first live space bridge. And and today in in Russia, it's being used as a major uh, advertising slogan. Anyway, um, I, I I you know, in terms of the demographics and stuff, I. I, I I hesitate because I think basically everybody's going to be part of this. I think in Tampa Bay you would find that older people are are finding the new social media to be a very convenient way to to stay in touch with relatives who are in other parts of the country, or other parts of the world, and and so I think it's affecting pretty much all of us across uh, all all age categories. And uh, did you have a follow up, Melton? Well, I, I, I wonder if you have a prediction, uh, David, of, for example, in China, what can we expect to see in China over the next uh, decade yeah. or next two decades as, as the social media begins to take a foothold and you have, yeah. you have young, young people that are now in their early 20s as they mature into their mid-40s and early 50s? Uh, what do you see happening to the social structure of that country and to the political structure of that country? Yeah, I mean, I think it's already changing China a great deal, and um, and I think we'll continue to see a, a faster rate of change uh, in the in the next couple of years than we have so far. But what you see happening is happening across the globe. You know, in Brazil, there have been millions of people in the streets, led, and and there are almost all all these movements, these citizens' movements, uh, have two common things. Almost all of them are against corruption in the government. And almost all of them are led by journalists. So if you look at Brazil, for example, you have this group called the Black Ninja Group, which is a group of journalists, and they've been leading huge demonstrations. But it's everywhere. It, it, it's happened not just in the Arab Spring, but it's happening, in, um, as Henry said, it's happening in this country, too, to a large degree. The, the social media is allowing citizens to organize. 
as never before. And I, there was a quote in yesterday's New York Times, there was an article about the media in Greece, and particularly about one independent radio station that's become very popular. I think its name is Radio Bubble. And the, uh, the head of the radio station said, we don't call ourselves alternative radio. We call ourselves citizens radio. Our, we, we don't care about audience. We care about our citizens. And I think what you have is people rising up in virtually every country of the world now as they're empowered with this tool that gives them access to information and, act, and the ability to communicate with each other. And, and this is happening, you know, in a, in a world that just a few years ago had 80, 90% of the population living in information poverty. And today, most of them, almost all of them are connected through the, through the Internet. And in another year or two, they'll all have, they'll all have uh, smartphones. And, and I think we're going to see then citizens really um, taking power and changing things in a, in a much more robust way than we've had with uh, representative governments. I think social media will change the way that governments work and become much more democratic than they are now, much more participatory. I, I, I want to give you an example of that we saw in Tampa Bay, and I don't know whether you follow this story or not, but the, the young man whose mother, who was born in prison, his mother died uh, in prison, went before the church and asked if someone would please adopt him. Uh, that caught fire through social media in this country, uh, and he had, I guess, at last count, 10,000 uh, requests wow. to adopt him. Um, I don't know if you saw that story. And another story that, that, that uh, I thought about while I glanced at, at, at the book uh, earlier this morning was uh, the story coming out of, I believe it's Nigeria, where the girl, young girl was brutally raped and the three perpetrators yeah. were ordered to cut some grass. And apparently the petition got started and there's now been 1.5 million uh, e-signatures to, oh. that, to that petition. I don't know if you're familiar with either of those, but uh, I would assume those tie into the theme of your book. Yes, it's it's just extraordinary. Now, some people are really frightened by this, frightened that you know the, the the masses, the crowds of people will rise up and take power, and and I, I think there's some some danger to that. I mean, I think we're seeing chaos in a number of the Arab Spring countries, for example. So I think there's some real concerns there. But I myself, um, I've been called a pathological optimist, and I really believe that I really believe in in the audience. I believe in the market. I believe that people will make right choices if they're given this power, and and they're getting this power. And we're just seeing the beginning of the use of social media as a tool for political organizing. It's the very beginning. The book is Citizens Rising, and the author is David Hoffman. Uh, Citizens Rising: Independent Journalism and the Spread of Democracy. You can find out more at facebook.com forward slash citizens rising and also at the website citizensrisingbook.com. Uh, David, is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we have to say goodbye? No, I just uh, hope that I get to visit you in, in Tampa Bay. It sounds, uh, I'm, I'm up here in a rainy, cold New York, upstate New York right now, and Tampa Bay sounds delightful. So have a great day, all of you. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, didn't even get to the uh, his Emmy with the Soviet state television or anything. Uh, before I lose my train of thought again, and there's lots of, that we could be talking about on, on this interview, but there's also lots of other things. What I stumbled over before we went into the interview about the unfairness of the 9.5% as a criteria for whether or not a family of four versus a spouse or a single person gets a subsidy, what I could have said much more clearly is if you have one person whose individual premium is 9.5% or less from the employer, and you have a coworker that has the same premium as an individual, but when they insure their children and their spouse also, if that goes over 9.5%, they're not entitled to the subsidy. So you could have one individual paying uh, let's say $150 a month is their contribution through the employer for their own personal plan and somebody next cubicle to them that to ensure their family has to pay $600 a month 
in premiums, and that person is paying 30% of their uh, income for health care, they don't qualify for any subsidies. So that was the unfairness that I tried to explain and stumbled over earlier in the, the show. Right, and I, I think that they'll continue to tweak uh, the act until they fix these problems. I mean, nothing, nothing that you roll out from the beginning uh, ever works 100% the way you hope it would work. Right, and, it, and it, that's it, the think where we would be if the obstruction that has gone on since 2009, is it, or 2010 was the beginning of the actual enactment, uh, if the last three years had been for improvements instead of just this brick wall to bang your head against. Right. Uh, a co cooperative, cooperative debate uh, would be the preferable way to solve the problems. You know, Henry, I always said about uh, coming up with an Affordable Health Care Act, I never understood why we just didn't take 10 of the brightest people that the leadership of the Republican Party wanted, uh, not politicians, but physicians, heads of organizations, heads of insurance companies, 10 from the Democratic leadership and 10 from the president, lock those 30 guys in a room until they come up with a, an agreed-upon health care plan, and then let those 30 individuals go out and sell it to the country instead of politicizing what is really one of the most important issues in American society. I'm not quite sure if it came up, but I think it's tangential to some of the things we were talking about with David Hoffman and, uh, well, Wade's question about drones and how they're going to affect our life. Now, media is interesting. We still don't get all this stuff coming to the surface. If you were to be on Twitter and you did a hashtag drones, you will be overwhelmed with a constant flow of information. But here in the U.S., it seldom comes up unless there's some... Uh, Rand Paul is doing a filibuster or something like that. So the question is, what if a Florida congressman held a hearing and nobody came? Well, that was the case with Congressman Alan Grayson, who got a lot of heat, and uh, I wasn't very pleased with it either, uh, his use of Klan imagery in one of his fundraising messages, using a, a burning cross as a symbol for the Tea Party, the TNT Party. Well, on the other hand, he's a man of great substance, too, and the... Uh, Issues he's tackled before, I think I told you, he clerked for both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia for the Supreme Court in his career. He was uh, recovered hundreds of millions of dollars uh, representing whistleblowers in Iraq war corruption. And he held a hearing in Congress uh, just in the last day or two on drones and the people that they have killed, innocent civilians, I should say. And, well, I found it on the web. But it's coming from Russia today, the English-language Russian news service. It was the first time actual victims of U.S. drone strikes were in Congress, and there were maybe only four members of Congress who came to this briefing, apart from the congressman who initiated this meeting. Now, uh, Melton, you're seeing the scene there. There's the family at the table that's going to be interviewed. We're not seeing the, which Congress people are there. But the entire spectator pool, it's not one of those big hearing rooms, but there's probably room for two or three dozen people at least back there, uh, if not a few more if you look at the seats around the edge of the, the room. But, you know, where is Code Pink on this hearing? Where, where are some of these people that get all so upset? Uh, anyway, let's continue. And Alan Grayson, it's no secret the U.S. Congress generally approves of drone strikes, so it's very difficult to expect a sudden change of heart, even though heart was what these drone victims were appealing to. On October 24th of last year, a U.S. drone strike left this Pakistani family devastated. The nine-year-old girl and her 13-year-old brother nearly escaped death that day. Their 67-year-old grandmother was killed while picking vegetables in the garden. I no longer love blue skies. I prefer gray skies. Drones don't fly when the skies are gray. Then the sky brightens and fear returns. You know, this family has never been abroad before, out of their home in North Waziristan in Pakistan. And the father said he looked at the life around here in D.C. And I met them at a lively D.C. restaurant after a screening of a documentary on drones where they were invited. I just want to point out, since we have to be the eyes of the audience, the family is extremely telegenic. The, the young girl is very pretty. The, uh, the young man, uh, you know, looks very Western. Uh, I mean, he's obviously Pakistani, but he looks very Western. He's in traditional clothes. But, you know, there's nothing about him, the, the, not the beard, and nothing that would give you that cliche or stereotype of, oh, my God, one of those people. And contrast this 
with the coverage of the young woman that the Taliban uh, shot or some uh, offshoot of the Taliban shot that was uh, up for the Nobel Peace Prize for, for her efforts to get an education and now to lift other women, young women, up in education. That was all over the place. But here, well, and the father, all you father said he wished his children too would be able to walk the streets, not afraid of being bombed at any moment. The family, of course, came to Washington hoping to get answers to why they have to live in fear every day. I had the chance to talk to the little girl very briefly a day before this meeting in Congress. Here's what she told me. Why do you think your grandmother was killed? I don't know. That's one of the reasons why we came here. I have no idea why my grandmother was killed. When the drone hit, I was outside with my grandmother. Everything became dark. I was scared, so I started to run. Then I noticed my hand was bleeding, so I tried to clean my hand, but blood kept coming out. But I was very scared, so I just kept running. Independent reports say U.S. drone strikes killed 174 children. Those are astonishing numbers if you put human faces to them. And the purpose of this briefing in Congress was to put human face to drone strikes. There's a sure chance that in Congress the tragedy of this family will fall on deaf ears, but there's hope that the public will take notice. In Washington, I'm Dennis Chekhan. Well, she can hope. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the, the article indicates that there, they estimate four to six hundred civilian noncombatants were killed by drone strikes. Um, obviously, I think within the in, within the context of defeating and, and defending and fighting the war on terror, drones have a useful purpose. Uh, to the extent that they're killing any civilians, that should be, and I believe is, unacceptable to both houses of Congress. Uh, and there should be some uh, hearings or some way to have accountability for a misfire drone or a drone that goes off course or faulty intelligence that leads to drone strikes in locations where they should not be used. Well, we're running out of time, but I would just point for our, the people you know you're going to hear well it was unintentional it was unintentional i'm not so sure about that i'm not saying that they target the children or target uh, civilians but it's sort of a perk to the thing if you want to the fact guy's a radical if he has a cause he might be willing to give up his life is he willing to give up his family's life too there there is a deterrent there that nobody really wants to talk about except here on the Morning Edge. And Melton, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Henry. Uh, latest Augie sighting on Monday, and we'll be back on Monday at 9 a.m. with another Morning Edge. I was old.